Welcome to the Gutsy Ones. My name is Sandeep Rao. I'm an engineer, a serial entrepreneur, and an advocate for the mental well-being of founders and their team. Each episode will showcase the fascinating story of people who have made gutsy decisions. We will look at how it impacted them and how they made their way back. Dear listeners, today I have with me Jamie Fuller. Now, according to his LinkedIn profile, he's the chairman and co-founder of EO Labs, a sports tech startup. Now, if I stopped there, I would do no justice to who he is. Jamie stands for progress in sports, in society, and as he admits, sometimes even in himself. I am stumped by what he has achieved. Jamie helped improve the Kafala labor law system in Qatar, probably his proudest moment, he claims. He got more funding to help stop doping in athletics. Jamie organized the Rainbow Laces movement in 2016 for every football court in Australia, and the list goes on. He also acquired and ran Skins, a compression sports brand, for 17 years. I'm sure he's just getting started. Jamie, welcome to this episode. Sandy. Excellent. So, Jamie, you clearly have a long list of achievements, which I think are in line with the progress in sports and in society. I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little more about your journey and how you've seen yourself move through these different phases right from the beginning. Sure. The, the majority control in skins. Yep. Before it was skins, uh, back in the end of 2002. Uh, it was a business that had launched in April that year yep. and was broke by December. So I stepped in literally when it was days away from going into administration, put the money in to keep it going and to validate the not just the technology but the business model itself, create the brand Skins because it wasn't Skins at that point, and then took it um, internationally into different markets. Had a pretty wild ride. It was some crazy good stuff that happened. And then in 2007, I made the fatal mistake of getting to bed privately right. uh, at the end of 07. So it was right on the cusp of the GFC. So looking back in 2007, did you know you were making a fatal mistake? Or oh, God. At, that point, <laughs> at that point, it no. was the best decision or it was a good decision? Look, I don't know. It's hard to know whether it was arrogance, confidence. Yeah or hubris, mm -hmm. but we felt indestructible. Right. We had exploded in Australia. Yeah. Primarily on the back of two things, on the back of elite acceptance, not investment, but elite acceptance of our product. Sure. And then telling our story, telling our, our brand story and telling our, our product story, mm. which then exploded mm. into the Australian sports zeitgeist yes and we then went into discussions with private equity that were robust i should say right and i agreed to the dumbest deal in the world which meant in 2012 i had to buy my private equity guys partners out and if i hadn't done that they would have basically taken over the whole business right and the only way I could do that was to go to Japan and raise a stonking great amount of money through a loan. Mm -hmm. Through a loan. A loan, okay. which yep. I did. Okay. Which came with some pretty ugly conditions. Primarily the worst one was I had to fire my Japanese distributors. Right. And the 
merchant, the large company that lent me the money took over the distribution rights for Japan and China. Right. So I had to shut down my Chinese operation, find my Japanese distributor, and gave it to the, these guys who then completely fucked it up. Mm -hmm. And we were totally reliant on our two cash cows were Japan and Australia. Right. And so we lost our Japanese cash cow, which would have made our repayments. I mean, the whole principle of the deal was that that in itself would have continued to pay down that debt. But then it's sort of not long thereafter, out of desperation, I shut down my Australian business, which is my obviously my home market. Mm -hmm. And the lighthouse for everything we did globally, I had to shut it down because I needed to free up the working capital out of the Aussie business primarily mm. from mm. inventory and debtors. Mm. And I had to free that up mm. to be able to pay down debt. So it then became a knock-on effect. And then over the course of the next few years, yeah. we got to the point where it was unsustainable. I had moved in 07 prior to doing the private equity deal. I personally moved to Europe and set up the global operations out of Switzerland, uh, which seemed like a smart thing to do at the time, but in hindsight was really stupid. Mm -hmm. But uh, so it, it, it then ended up in early 2019 where I had to put the global operations into bankruptcy in Switzerland, yep. which then collapsed the whole structure across the world. We had, right. I think, eight offices in different countries and that all wow. collapsed. So I'll be honest, you know, what I really liked in the last few minutes, you have admitted to so many mistakes that you think you've done in hindsight. But I think every founder does these things because you're taking decisions with limited information. And at that point in time, it seems like a really good decision, but you just don't know what things are going to play out. And you take risks and sometimes they pay off and sometimes they don't. And I love the fact that you are here explaining your journey. And I'll be honest, I was a Skins customer and I love the product. And you know, for me to now understand what you've been through, it's incredible. We believe, you know, at Founders Wellbeing, so one of the things we want to do is to raise awareness about the mental health challenges that founders and entrepreneurs and, and the teams go through. And that is fundamentally due to one of four things we believe. You know, it's either capital, it's governance, it's team related, or it's go to market, right? Which of these things? Well, it doesn't have to be one or the other. <laughs> it can right? be you more, know, right? It can be all or it can be a mix. Yeah. Is there something that we missed that you think, you know, no, you would focus I think, on? I think. It's a reasonable perspective position to push forward. I would suggest probably the most stressful part for me was the team. Yeah. Obviously, you can have a, and we had a, a number of offices, like I said, a number of operations sure. across around the world, which was a mistake in itself. To be as aggressive in my global expansion expectations. Mm -hmm in hindsight, was was dumb. And I found the idea of finding those people, identifying those people, the hardest in the business. Right. The hardest and most stressful point. And I had a go. We decided it would have been, I say we as a board, sure. decided around 2009 that I was not the right person to run the business. Okay. When it comes to the, what I call the more boring operational times. Yes where you're plowing through spreadsheets and yes. reports and that's not me. And so it would have been, yeah, it would have been about 08 we realised that I shouldn't be doing it and so we set out to replace me as uh -huh. CEO. Uh -huh. 
and we found one guy who seemed terrific, presented really well. Right. He was based on the west coast of the US. He came to Australia and we had a board meeting here in Sydney. He presented to the board and he looked fabulous. Right. He said all the right things. Right. So we appointed him in a role of CCO, Chief Commercial Officer. Okay. Just during a transition period. And after six months, when he was still saying the same things <laughs> and making the same motherhood statements right. that he'd made in the board pitch and hadn't done anything, and we realised then that he was totally and utterly incompetent. Right. Sorry, it, it wasn't six months. It took more like nine months. Right. And then we, we had our worst fears realise that he was a complete ass clown. So my point is that we thought we had someone who was really good and who could transform the business and who could step in. Yep. I mean, like I said, I was a lousy operator. This guy was, you know. He, <laughs> he made, made you me, look good. He yeah. made me look not good but brilliant. <laughs> brilliant, okay. Right? Let's look at the distribution, right? So you did have distribution in Japan and China before this partner came on and it was working. I did, my, Japanese, my Japanese business was massive. Yeah. So what... And hugely f profitable. Absolutely. Hugely profitable. So something changed. What happened in there, like as a lessons learned? You know, well, it was this. I got to that point where I had to buy out the private equity. No. So what happened in the new distribution strategy? Yeah, but they, they, they were just fucking idiots. Okay, that's no. Something. I'm serious. They, they, we're talking about a very large Japanese institution, like right. one of the top, sure. the largest three companies in Japan. Yeah. Who believe their own bullshit? Right. And what they do is they invest in companies yeah they also fund and finance and clip the ticket they claim to be operators they wouldn't have a clue about being operators so i had this really really awesome setup in china i had a wonderful team of brilliant people these mm -hmm. weren't distributors this was my own subsidiary mm -hmm. and these guys in japan insisted that we fired them because they were going to put in their cookie cutter solution. Mm. And let me tell you, when I say my team was brilliant because they were engaged with, in our business, it wasn't a big brand, let's just go and leverage the brand equity. Yeah. It was about product performance and dealing at the top end of the pyramid when it comes to people that are serious about sport. Now, China might have 1.3 billion people, mm but it doesn't have the sports culture that we have here in Australia yes, or in some sure. of the other Western countries. However, by virtue of the fact that they've got 1.3 billion people, they've still got a significant market. Yes. And if you can go into that upper end of the market and tap into that, it becomes then immensely influential. Then your brand gets sexy. Then you get people buying the product because they want to be seen to be serious yeah, it about it. becomes an aspirational brand. Exactly. Right? Yeah. There's a series of games. Sure. And we were on that journey on that pathway, had a wonderful woman running that business, mm. had a great dedicated team, small but terrific. And these ass clowns came in and basically said to me, if you want to borrow, if you want us to lend you this money, mm. you have to shut that down. And what these idiots did is they gave control of our Chinese business and to a subsidiary of theirs in China mm. that was responsible for sourcing. Mm. So here was a company responsible for the acquisition of cotton t-shirts mm. 
<laughs> are now running right. our Chinese business. premium No sports. idea. Yeah. No idea. Right. So when I say they were a pack of fucking idiots, I absolutely <laughs> mean they were a pack of fuck because you'd have to be a fucking idiot to make that change. I talk about private equity in a derogatory fashion, but I don't mean it. In fact, I have a very good relationship, mm, like yeah, a very sure. good relationship with my private equity partner. Yeah. I saw him last week. We had coffee last week. <laughs> so I don't begrudge private equity for their yeah. objective, which is I want to make as much money as I can, as quickly Quick, as I can, yeah, yeah. with as minimal risk as I can. Yeah. That's their model. And if I was giving them $10 million of my money, that's what I would like to see. Yeah. Unfortunately, there is an inherent conflict with a developing brand like we were, which is all about nurturing the business and nurturing the brand mm. and taking long-term decisions. So tell me more about EO. I'd love to hear more. In early 2020, in January 2020, it just so happened that a mutual friend introduced me to a guy called Dr. Kenneth Graham. He and I met in January and very quickly I realized that he had three unbelievable skills. Mm. One was his deep knowledge of what moves the needle for elite athlete performance. Mm -hmm. Number two, his passion is around research mm -hmm. and particularly being across emerging research. And number three, understanding technical innovations. And when you combine those three things, you can then conceive products and devices Absolutely. that help elite athletes. Right. And it just so happens where he finishes, I start, right. which is product development, commercialization, yeah. brand creation, brand building. Go to market and all of that. Yeah. So very quickly, we realized that we needed to do something together. And my agency partner is in London. Mm. And so I took the opportunity to kick off the brand development process with them, which we did in April 2020. Mm. And for six months, we worked on the brand mm. before we even said, what's the name? Right. Okay? And this is the shit I love because awesome. it, it was six months of being able to say, what do we stand for? What do we do? What do we mean? What's our tone of voice? Sorry. What's our tone of voice? We did that for six months. Mm -hmm. And we defined and articulated our values as accelerating human progress through sport. Right. Not accelerating human progress in sport, but right. through sport. Through sports, yes. Because of all the work that I've done previously around engaging sport in the community and the values and what it stands for and the importance and governance. Absolutely. And prejudice and eradicating homophobia and all that sort of stuff. So I wanted to extend that. So once he articulated that as accelerating human progress through sport, that then led to, well, what are we going to call this thing? Mm. And my creative director in London, brilliant man called Seb Hill, he realized that it was Latin for progress. Right. Beautiful. So that's the tie-in. That's why. Beautiful. And then, and then quickly with Kenneth, we realized that in, what we needed was a suite of products mm. and Kenneth already had in his head mm. a number of different devices, the ways to that we can create devices and products and so we started that journey and started developing those and partnered with innovation people and yeah. went from there. And so you've launched one product right now? We've actually launched two. Okay. We've launched we've well, 
we're in different stages. Sure. So we've launched a product for swimmers. Yes. Which is literally going to change the face of swimming, of competitive Fantastic. swimming. So uh, it measures force magnitude and direction. So anybody who is into cycling will know what an SRM or a power meter does for cyclists. We've been able to take that concept and apply it to swimmers. So it's a very small, lightweight device mm -hmm. that sits in the palm of each hand, mm -hmm. and we're able to measure force in six different vectors, right. up, down, left, right, forward, back, uh -huh. the amount of force in one hundredth of a second increments. Wow. And so we can map that, which enables the swimmer to if you like, identify good force and bad force mm. and refine your technique so that you can have more good and less bad. Right. We've got five devices. Four of them we own and have developed ourselves completely. One of them is a licensed deal, and mm -hmm. that's the second device, mm -hmm. which is most people know what an ECG, an electrocardiogram is. Yep. This is an EEG, an electroencephalogram. Mm -hmm. So where an ECG measures your heart yes and eeg measures your brain waves all oh, right and through Kenneth's research mm -hmm. we know that a concussed brain responds differently to a non-concussed brain right. to flashing lights mm -hmm. so this looks like a virtual reality headset uh -huh. you put it on yep. it takes less than two minutes eyes flash in the wearer's eyes and there are five sensors that sit at the base of the visual cortex on the back of your head. Right. And that reads how your brain is reacting to those lights. Fascinating. And through that, we're able to diagnose, concussed or non-concussed. Mm. But more important, or just as importantly, you, as long as the wearer has access to the headset over the subsequent 7, 14, 21 days, mm. we're able to map uh, brain recovery, right. progress. Right and return to play. Wow. So, because sometimes people take weeks and weeks to recover. Yes. Sometimes they might take days. Mm. And so we're able to see how the brain responds and we're able to help athletes and coaches and doctors yes. make clinical judgments. And we don't push this technology as a be-all be -all and end-all. Mm -hmm. We propose it as One an addition tools. to the other tools sure. that doctors have sure. when they do HIAs. Yep to assess whether somebody's concussed. Okay. So Jamie, hearing about your journey with skins, you know, what's coming to mind is this clearly element of fit that you have expressed implicitly. So there's a fit between you and your investors because you've had, you know, two different instances. There's an element of fit between you and the person that you brought on board that didn't work. And there's an element of fit where between you and the distributors that changed and then didn't work. Right, so I think the theme that I'm seeing coming through is that you know you need to have strategic fit when you're a young company. Well, I, I would say in uh -huh. th there's, there's a phrase that says culture eats process every day. Right, right. It's cult culture and culture yeah. and fit is a good is a good way of describing it because if somebody doesn't fit within our organisation, yes. right, you're not just a piece of meat with the ability to look at a computer. Correct. If you don't fit into our culture, yeah. then it would be wrong for you to be working with us and it'd be wrong for us to have you in our team. Yeah, and it's not just internal teams, it's no, external teams. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. I talked about the nightmare of finding really good employees Correct. Yes. and defining how, how to define them and how to how to measure them. It's exactly the same with distributors. Yes. And there's a problem with distributors. Uh -huh. There's a big problem. If a distributor doesn't have a long enough a roadmap pathway, uh -huh. They're not going to invest. If you think you're going to go and do a distribution deal 
and with somebody for two years, they're never going to invest in your building your category, your product, your brand, sure. your channel, your distribution. They won't invest. What you want is you want your partner. Uh-huh. Like our Japanese, initial Japanese guys. Right. They threw everything in the kitchen sink at it. Mm. We did too. We came along and I, sure. I put two million US on the table to do a TV campaign in Japan. Right. But they did their job and we did ours and it exploded. Yeah. It's a double-edged sword because when you want to get into a long-term relationship, mm. if they're a dud, then that screws you as well. And the fit. So I think you know a lesson for all our listeners here is, you know, be it internal team members, be it your investors, board members, be it your distribution partners, you know, I think you have to look for that fit, especially in the early years, because it's so hard to get somebody to do all the work for you. It's not going to happen. You have to find that cultural fit, that strategic fit. And that's when the magic happens. You've seen both sides of it play out, right? So when the magic works, as well as when it doesn't. And when I look at all the work that we did in the last, in the skins business around, you know, whether it was the kafala work in Qatar or whether it was the, the trying to eradicate homophobia or, you know, looking for governance reform in cycling and anti-doping or whatever it is, that then became a magnet for like-minded people Mm. who wanted to be part of our business because Mm. they were attracted to what we did based on our values as opposed to how do we sell more tights. Correct. And if you are focused on the transactional, how do we sell more tights, then you're going to be very limited. Today... It's normal for companies to come out and stand on, yes. whether it's homophobia or yeah. racism or what have you. I wanted to try and start that conversation. I wanted to try and lead that because mm-hmm. my objective then, and probably one of my biggest regrets with the collapse of Skins was one of my key objectives was to be able to show that purpose can not only help you with your brand, but it can help you with your business. Mm-hmm. And I've had people ask me whether we went tits up because I went down that purpose route. Absolutely not. Yeah. We went to stop because I made a bad call in 07. Jamie, I want to talk to you about how you felt emotionally as you were shutting down skins. There are two phases. So the most easiest phase to define was once I pushed the button and I thought to myself beforehand, I thought, what's this going to be like? And I knew I was in for... I figured anything from three to six months mm. of, I'll call it depression, whether it's clinically depression or not, the same sort of feeling that you have. If sure. You, you know. So I thought I'm in for three to six months and it's going to be fucking hell. It's going to be a nightmare. Mm. As it was, it was 11 days. And on the 12th day, I had a conversation with myself. Right. right? I spoke to myself as if I was speaking to somebody else in my shoes. Uh-huh. And everything went clear instantly it was remarkable i it just the fog lifted the weight lifted from my shoulders and suddenly you i went from the call what it was self-pity yeah i went from self-pity and which become which feeds itself yes you know and you go into that spiral i just went from that into i know what i'm doing i know what i've got to do yeah and i look at this logically and probably the biggest factor was when you look at the nightmare you're in, yeah. in the context of the nightmare that a lot of other people are in, correct, it's nothing. nothing yeah. It's a walk in the park. And so when you have that realisation and you're able to step out and 
what else compounded the fact or helped was the fact that it wasn't just that moment where you push the button and say, we're more. It's the years leading up to it. Mm. It's the mistakes you made out of short-term desperation, you know, shutting your own mm. Australian subsidiary, going into markets that you should never go into, going into product lines and channels that you should never go into, selling big sales to Amazon that you know are going to fuck you to brand, but you need the short hit of the Correct. the million-dollar order, the $2 million order to start with. It's the lead-up and the anticipation that's horrible. So... Probably for 2016, 17, or certainly 17 and 18, life mm. was horrible. Okay. What hurts Jamie when life is horrible? What do you do on a regular basis to help you? You've got to try and lift yourself up out of How, how does Jamie do it? Oh, just, you know. I'm, my thing has always been um, books. Sure. My thing, I've always, and if you look at my, I think Twitter profile says I'm going to go anywhere without a book ever. Okay. And I don't. It's, it's, and the other thing I also like to do is I like to spend time on my own. I mm. have always done a huge amount of travel, and yep. so I'm very used to my own company. Mm-hmm. I'm very used to having dinner on my own. I sit in restaurants with a book. My father always That's your me time. Yeah, my father always said, you know, the, the optimal number for a dinner party is two, <laughs> yourself and the waiter. <laughs> so, and that's I'm very comfortable with my own company. What's next for EO? So... I'm very fixated on being listed uh-huh. and and the access that gives you to capital and liquidity for your shareholders. So, yes, yeah, that's where I'm at now and looking at a couple of productions to make that happen. Mm-hmm. What's the time frame, Jamie? Uh, end of the year. Okay, wow. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty aggressive. Yeah, it is. It's awesome. very aggressive. I'd love to finish up by asking you what would be your advice tips to founders out there entrepreneurs who are going through some interesting challenging times or those who want to start a business you know or start a company i'm we're based here in a startup hub in the center of sydney yeah we have a a core team of nine people Mm -hmm. the i can't the average age i don't know what it is but when i tell you if I quickly run through them, 64, 63, 62, 61, 57, 50, 47. I think there's another 60 I've forgotten. And a 26. Right. We do have a 26. <laughs> In this startup hub, we're surrounded by what I call kids. They're not kids, yeah. but there's a lot of youthful energy yeah. and a lot of younger people yeah. who are bravely going into that world and a lot of them are going to fail. Sure. And I see business concepts, products, ideas that have no real uniqueness or proprietary value. Mm-hmm. That worries the hell out of me. Right. You need to be able to cut through. You need a point of difference. You need a reason for people to buy what you make or what you do. Correct. And I see so many businesses here that do not have that when i look at skins which had one technology and one product and still today the brand was bought by a chinese company right they're trading on the technology from 22 years ago right <laughs> it's still they haven't innovated yeah so for me with what we do innovation is critical and that's great our scope of innovation when you take our the people we've got is brilliant 
So it's about solving a problem, doing it uniquely, and then having fit in your growth story, right? So it's about having fit with people, with partners, with investors. I think that really is the and then, and then obviously, look, there's the obvious for that, you know, yeah. operational capacity and sure. ability and, you know, can you, can you run it? And if you can't, can you get somebody? All that, all that sort of bollocks. Right. Yeah. It's business as usual. Yes. But when you distill it down to its absolute core, yes. what is and it needs to be something that is proprietary, protectable, and you're, whether you're solving a problem that exists or you're not creating a problem, but you're highlighting a problem that people don't know no, about. Yeah, yeah. And then saying, hey, here's this problem and this is what we can do. And so that's the best advice I can give to anybody who wants to go into business is uh-huh. you've got to be disciplined. Jamie, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And good luck with the year. Thank you, Sam. Cheers. <laughs>